Uh, we want to read a scripture from the book of Genesis, chapter 11, that really gives a foundation for where Babylon, this book is set, where Babylon came from. And then we'll jump to Revelation tonight. Here's what it says in Genesis 11, 1 to 4. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shirinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and they had mortar. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And then moving to Revelation, the final book of the Bible, chapter 18, verses 1 to 8. Revelation 18, 1 to 8. Some of you are flipping there. That's good. Some of you are thumbing to get there. That is good. Revelation 18, 1 to 8 says, After this, I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She's become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. And then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquity. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion of her in the cup she mixed. She is as she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen. I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. It is uh, good to get together here on a Sunday night in Parksville, and um, tonight we get uh, the privilege of beginning to look at the book of Daniel. And Daniel is a, uh, a great book of the Bible for so many reasons. One of the things about the book of Daniel is it takes us back 2,500 years to the life of a very real individual who lived in this world. And it gives us some insight into the challenges that he faced and how he challenged it, or how he faced those um, challenges. It is somewhat of a strange world, as we will come to see when we are confronted with it, but it is a, a fascinating world. And uh, we will head back to Babylon in the 6th century before Christ. And we will spend a number of uh, uh, weeks there. I think I planned about 14 weeks there. And many of us are really familiar with the first six chapters of Daniel, the stories about Daniel in the lion's den and uh, Nebuchadnezzar or Belshazzar seeing the writing of the hand on the wall and uh, the boys thrown into the furnace. But the last uh, six chapters of the book are a little bit more um, uh, difficult uh, to handle. 
One of the things I want to do tonight, though, is just um, try and set the book up within the rest of the Bible. It's really helpful for us to see how a book of the Bible actually fits in the story of history and what God is doing from Genesis to Revelation. And that's one of the reasons why Dan read in Genesis chapter 11 and then in Revelation chapter 18, because that really is the scope and the span of some of the concepts in the book of Daniel. And the first place I want to start, I want to read a passage of Scripture from you from Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 1 to 14. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles under the seats in front of you, and you can follow along with me. But this really um, helps us begin to set the stage for Daniel. And so Daniel, uh, or Jeremiah chapter 29, uh, verses 1 to 14. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconi and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. And don't listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for your welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Why start in Jeremiah? Well, I want to start in Jeremiah because I think that's how Daniel found his grounding in the midst of finding himself sucked out of Jerusalem and driven into Babylon. Daniel was a young man of probably 15 to 17 years old, a man who knew whatever scriptures they had available to him and knew them well. He was a man who read the Word of God. He was a man who obeyed the Word of God. And he was a man who trusted in what the Word of God told him that God would do. And so Daniel uh, was one who allowed his circumstances to be interpreted by what he read in the book of Jeremiah. Here in Jeremiah, we find that Daniel realizes that there is a long road ahead of him. 
He came to understand that the exile, and exile is just when a, another king comes in, takes you all prisoners, and sends you somewhere else. So Daniel had learned that this was not just a fluke. This wasn't just a set of random circumstances that happened to the people of God. Rather, if you had listened carefully three times in Jeremiah, God says, I sent you into exile. And Daniel understood that the exile of the people was the hand of God, the hand of discipline upon his people for the rebellion and their sinfulness, which drove them out of Jerusalem into Babylon. And Daniel believed the word of God when God had said that if the people would not listen to God, if they wouldn't obey God, if they would continue to have a hard heart toward God, that finally God would one day say, enough. And he would bring upon the people all that he would said he would do if they stayed in disobedience. And so Daniel understood that this exile was not a chance event. In fact, when you read the first book of Daniel, and we'll do that in a couple weeks, um, when we come back to it, in Daniel chapter 1, it says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. That's what kings do. That's what people do. That's what Putin does. That's what uh, any leader has done. That's what Stalin did. That's what Hitler did. They just decide they want to take over a place and they go after it. But the other side of history is in verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim king of Judah into his hand with some of the vessels of the temple. There are two layers to history. There's the human side of history and there's the divine side of history. And uh, Daniel understood that what was going on in this exile was something bigger than just Nebuchadnezzar do what kings do. It shaped his attitude as well about how he should live in exile. When, if you were listening, as I read Jeremiah, there, God talks about false prophets. Because there was a group of false prophets who saw this exile, and what they did was they got up before the people and they said, Thus says the Lord, in two years it will be over and you'll be back in Jerusalem. Where Daniel says, No, God said it would be 70 years. There's a big difference between two years and 70 years. And so Daniel understood God's word to be true about it being a 70-year exile, and then he obeyed what God said he should do. He set down roots in Babylon. He knew he was going to be there for some time. And Jeremiah, God through Jeremiah says, Seek and pray for the welfare of the city. Why? Because in the welfare of that city, you will find your blessing. As it goes with the city you are, as you serve in it, as you set down roots for it, so it will go with you. He says, pray for the city. He said there that, that, that you are to build houses and that you are to have families, that you are to live in exile for these next 70 years in this way. Daniel's understanding of God did not lead him to develop an, a kind of a ghetto mentality, which did some of the Jews, when they got to Babylon, they say, fine, we're here, but we're going to have nothing to do with the Babylon people. We're going to have nothing to do with their literature. We're going to have nothing to do with their learning. We're just going to hold ourselves up and hang on tight for the next 70 years. And what I find is the same tension that we find that the people of Israel had in this exile is the same tension that we as the people of God have today. How do we live in the culture in which God has placed us? How do we live in the schools that we go to? Many of you are going back to university. Many of you are going back to school. Some of us are continuing our jobs. How do you live in a setting that is anti-God? And Daniel, I think, helps us 
understand that a little bit. Daniel lived out Jeremiah chapter 29. And my hope is that as we wrestle through the book of Daniel, you and I will say, okay, God, how do I live in Parksville? How do I best live in Nanaimo? How do I live in Qualicum in a way that helps me engage with the people and the culture that I'm in, but doesn't allow me to be shaped and transformed by that culture? This, in fact, is the theme throughout the Bible. It's not just Daniel. We find Jesus praying this. In John chapter 17, verse 15, Jesus, as he's praying to his Father, he says, I do not ask you, Father, to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. That's just a beautiful phrase. And then he goes on and he says, They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, remember, God sent his Son into this corrupt, depraved world. Jesus said, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. There's a lot going on here, but if you're wrestling with how do you function in the, the neighborhood you live, how do you function in the new school that you're going to, how do you function in classes where they are demonstratingly anti-God, well, this is part of the way that you begin to function. You realize that Jesus has placed you there. You realize that Jesus has sent you there. You realize, though, that the way that you stay um, pure is to sanctify yourself in truth, to allow the Word of God to mold you and shape you and transform you from the inside out. We are to be of the world or in the world, but not of the world. And then another verse is Paul in Corinthians, he picks up this same theme. And there is a whole bunch of ugliness going on in the church, and Christians are not perfect. But one of the things that Christians ought to do is repent when they sin and to, to seek forgiveness when they've caused dissension and trouble. And so Paul is wrestling with this, and it seems like there's a bunch of Christians in the church that don't give a rip what people are doing. And they don't care if they're brothers and sisters in Christ, so if they're in sexual immorality, they still have fun with them. If they're greedy, if they're angry, if they've got tempers, if they're not responding to repentance, they're still loving them up. Well, this is what Paul says. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or greedy or swindlers or idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world. You see what Paul is saying? He says we ought to as Christians be striving to be um, pure and to avoid sexual immorality and greed and idolatry. But we, with people in the world, that's who they are. How will they ever hear about Jesus? How will we ever influence them if we're not rubbing shoulders with them? And so Paul says, don't avoid people in the world. And then in another place, in a few of the books of the Bible, they start with this sort of a headline. And I, 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 Ephesians is the one that just jumped to my mind this week. Um, Paul begins that letter to Ephesians this way. He says, to the saints. Now you might say, well, who are the saints? Well, every single person who is a follower of Jesus, is a saint. Sainthood, um, contrary to the teaching of some churches, is not something that you achieve. It's not something that you gain after you have performed so many miracles or after you have lived sort of an exemplary life. Sainthood is something that you receive the moment you become a follower of Jesus Christ. And so every single person here who is a follower of Jesus Christ is a saint. And so Paul writes then to the saints who are in Ephesus. Ephesus was just a disastrous city, spiritually, relationally, religiously. But Paul recognized that 
people of God live in public places, in cities. And so he says to the saints in Ephesus, and he helps them know how they ought to live out their Christian faith in such a pagan culture. And so Daniel, like Joseph before him, understood this reality and this tension. And part of the tension uh, that Daniel felt was, was um, and some wrestle with this, is in Psalm 137. People don't know how to bring Psalm 137 into line with Daniel. Uh, and Psalm 137, some of you might know this, by the waters of Babylon. There we sat down and wept, and when we remembered Zion, on the willows we hung our lyres. For there our captors required of songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing to us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem of my highest joy. In other words, people says, well, people are mourning and they're crying on the rivers of Babylon. They're longing for Jerusalem, for God. And I say, well, yes. Because while we live in the midst of Parksville or Nanaimo or Qualicum or whatever city you come from, we're in a culture that has abandoned God. We're in a culture that has sucked us away from God and His influence and the people of God. And we're tempted and we're tried and it's tough. And we long to be home. We long to be at places where there's peace and perfection. And that's what we long for as Christians, to be home with Jesus. And there ought to be times in your weeks or in your months when you're going about your stuff and all of a sudden you just sit down at a chair or you go for a walk and you mourn inside and you say, I just want to go home. I just want to be with Jesus. I just want this all to go away and I want the fight to stop and I want the joy to be full. And I think that's what's going on with Psalm 137. It's just this realization that this world can be an ugly place to live and I would rather be home in Jerusalem, singing the songs of Zion. And so as you live in the world, we should mourn the loss of Christian culture. You should mourn the fact when you go to a biology class, they don't at all acknowledge God. Or when they go to a philosophy class, they tell you that God is dead. You should mourn that. But you should still listen and learn and figure out how to engage people who are being told there is no God or that God is dead. What's Revelation got to do with it then? It was Jeremiah that shaped Daniel's attitude and determination about how he would live. What's Revelation's got to do with it? Well, Revelation chapter 16, verse 17 to the end of 18 and into 19 is about the destruction of Babylon. And it's really important that we understand this, that Babylon is not just a city. It's what it symbolizes or what it signifies. And what we find in Revelation 18 is that Babylon is finally and completely and totally destroyed by God. And I want us to understand that the end of Babylon is destruction. That the people of God will outlast any kingdom of man because we are eternal and the kingdoms of man are temporal. And so as we think about Daniel, we understand that there's uh, two cities involved. There's Jerusalem and there's Babylon. But those two cities, while very real cities and historical cities, uh, what's being described is something much bigger than that. What's being described and articulated for us are two different worldviews, two different ways of thinking about life in this world on this earth. Both the Old and the New Testaments talk about Babylon and Jerusalem as entities. 
He talks about them as two competing cities, as two competing philosophies of life, of looking at things. And Revelation describes the end of earthly Babylon in all that it stands for in the Bible. Babylon started long before Nebuchadnezzar's days. It started in, in Genesis chapter 10. It was founded by a man named Nimrod. And Nimrod built the city of Babel from which Babylon is derived. And then you go to chapter 11 from which Daniel or, or Dan read. And chapter 11 talks about the Tower of Babel. And Babel signifies what Babylon signifies. It's an attempt for man to find meaning in life and reputation outside of God. And so they built a tower to reach the heaven. They wanted to build a name for themselves. And in disobedience to God, who said, scatter and fill the earth, they said, we're not going to scatter, we're going to stay put. And so again, in early chapters of the Bible, we find there that people wanted to live life without reference to God. They wanted to form culture without reference to God. They wanted to have a name for themselves without reference to God. They wanted to be independent of God. They didn't want God to have any place in their lives or their culture. One individual says that Babylon is a code word for humanity seeking to build a city without God. Every time you hear that word, then, you should think about that. What Babylon represents and what it signifies, it signifies an attempt to make sense of and live life without God. So these people are trying to build a civilization without God. The source of, many say, the source of all false religions can be traced back to Babylon. Others can say, and they've demonstrated this, that, that um, uh, uh, astrology and all that's connected with it finds its roots in Babylon. It was opposed to everything from God and everything about God. So when Daniel begins by describing life in Babylon, we are to understand that, yes, it is a real historical city. But there is much more going on than meets the eye. Babylon, uh, uh, Paul, or John says in Revelation, is the mother of harlots. In other words, Babylon produces more Babylons. That's what Babylon does. It, it spreads its influence across humanity. And so we could say Nineveh is Babylon, or Tyre is Babylon, or Las Vegas is Babylon, or Monte Carlo is Babylon. Never forget that Babylon is more than a single city. It is a global reality. It is a global phenomena. Babylon, whatever form it takes, is the opposite of the heavenly Jerusalem of which we belong and of which we are part. Babylon is the harlot. Jerusalem is the bride. Babylon is to be destroyed. Jerusalem is to exist forever into eternity. And so we understand that there is something much bigger taking place on the pages of Daniel than just two cities having it out. Babylon is all around us. One individual in his commentary on Revelation, on these particular chapters at the end of them, says, how do we know if our city is becoming Babylon? How do we know if Parksville is becoming Babylonized, or Nanaimo, or Qualicum, or wherever you come from? How do you know? I summarized his points this way. One, it is leaving the living God out of the equation. It celebrates sensuality. It's characterized by injustice. Its identity is in what it produces, or it worships the things that it makes or the things that it's known for. It's characterized by violence, 
constantly preparing for war, solving its problems with its war. It's marked by deception and counterfeits. It is full of idolatry. These are the pressures we face. And yet, like Daniel, we have to come to grips with how we live in Babylon and with Babylon all around us. And you come to Revelations 18.4 and you, you, you see the same kind of contradiction that people maybe see with Psalm 137. Because the angel says to the people, he says, come out of Babylon. And you say, well, what's he saying? Are, are we supposed to abandon Babylon? Well, no, what he's saying is don't be influenced by it. Don't be shaped by it. Don't allow it to determine who you are. Come out of its influence. Understand that God is the one who sets your course. God is the one who determines your lifestyle. God is the one who gives you principles. So come out of Babylon, but still live in Babylon. It's the same principle that Jesus talks about in John chapter 19. And so Daniel in some ways, is about living in Babylon. You know, appearances can be deceiving. We say this sometimes. People are not always what they seem to be. Or don't judge a book by its cover. Babylon, on a superficial level, is appealing. There's no doubt. Like, why do so many people flood to Las Vegas? Why do so many people engage in sexual immorality? Why is sensuality so appealing? Why is that stuff so attractive? Because there is a certain attractiveness about it. But it's only skin deep. Below that is a world of hurt and horror and terror. But Babylon never tells you that. And so our hope is that we can be like Daniel and have the courage to come out of Babylon and yet serve God in Babylon. The man, Daniel. A couple things quickly about the book now then. That's, to make sense of Daniel, you have to understand Jeremiah and you have to begin to wrestle with Babylon. So what about Daniel himself? Well, he was a young man of Judah. Most people think he was somewhere between 15 and 17 years old, older than the vast majority of us here. Ripped out of his home, away from his family, out of his culture, and dropped into an entirely foreign, hostile culture. We are exposed to a great deal of life when we look at Daniel's book. When he finished his service to some of the greatest empires of the world, his career would span roughly 68 years. 68 years he served mostly pagan kings and rulers. But he was a man of conviction, he was a man of faith, he was a man of prayer, he was a man of God. The Bible tells us in Daniel that he was treasured by God. He knew God intimately. He, 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 God revealed his secrets to him. He understood that God's way was the only way and determined that he would follow that regardless of the obstacles that Babylon would throw up against him. He was a visionary. He was a man who received visions of the future so accurate today that many people doubt that he ever existed at all. And if you go and look at some many commentaries or go online, many of them would say Daniel was just a figment of our imagination. He's a fictitious character. He was made up by people in the second century because his prophecies are too accurate. His visions about the future are too precise. There's no way that a man in the sixth century could write stuff about the second century that was perfectly accurate. And so they discard the book because of the supernatural. They discard the book because they think God doesn't intervene in the lives of men and women today. But the Bible says something different. The Bible says that the way the God of heaven and earth, the God of the Bible, distinguishes himself from all other gods is that he knows the future. 
that he is the one that knows the beginning from the end, that he can predict the future because he plans the future and he determines the future. And so Isaiah would tell us, I am God, uh, God speaking through Isaiah, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Why? Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all of my purposes, calling a bird of prey from the east, a man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken. I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. That's the God who Daniel served. That was the God behind the book of Daniel. That is why it is so accurate and precise, even though it was written 450 years before any of it happened. In my prayer for us as we walk through Daniel in these next number of weeks is that we will come to see how God-centered Daniel really is. And how God-centered is his view of the political stage on which he plays out his life. That Daniel was able to see the various portrayals of God's sovereignty woven through the tapestry of his visions. The heart of the book's message is, of course, the good news of the kingdom of God. That nations and empires and thrones and dominions rise and fall. Human kings and queens rise and fall. But the city of God will endure. And we come to Revelation where finally, at the end of it, when all the kingdoms of this world have been destroyed and Babylon, heaven declares the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and he will reign forever and ever. So this was a tiny bit about Daniel and the book. Finally the book. How do you make sense of this book? I hope you will take some time to read it once or twice in the next 14, 15 weeks. I, I hope you might even say, you know, I'm going to try and read it once a week. It takes about 53 minutes to read. I'm not a fast reader. That's, it takes about 53 minutes. You can listen to it on your computer. There's guys that talk it, and you can probably find a woman that talks it, and you can just sit there and listen to it. And if you read the book for yourself, there's an obvious structure that jumps off the page to you. Well, it's divided in two. There's the first six chapters, which are stories about Daniel and stories about um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and uh, stories about a handwriting on the wall, six stories in all. And then you come to uh, chapters 7 to 12, and oh, there's a bunch of visions there, four visions that, that are really kind of confusing, but uh, all right, there's four visions there. And so you think, okay, the book divides neatly down the middle. But what is less known about the book of Daniel is that it is a truly Canadian book. Daniel is bilingual. And not a lot of people know that about the book of Daniel, but that helps us understand its structure. Daniel is written in two languages. It's written in Hebrew and in Aramaic. The first section, which is chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 2 and halfway through verse 4, is in Hebrew. The sections from the last part of chapter 2, verse 4, all the way to the end of chapter 7 is written in Aramaic. And then the last chunk from chapter 8 to 12 is again written in Hebrew. That gives us maybe some clues about how we ought to think about the book then and how it should structure it and how we should study this particular book. Aramaic was, after all, the international language of the earth probably as early as the 9th century BC. It was a well-known language. It was the court language of the Babylonian Empire. So if we think about this, then we can amend our outline just a little bit. Because the Aramaic section ties chapter 7 with chapters 2 to 6. And so we think, well, they must be connected then somehow. 
that maybe the writer intended us to see them as a unit um, and that chapter 7 is more linked with the stories than it is with the visions section. So we might outline the book then this way, if you have a one, a second outline, an amended outline. Chapter 1 is about living faithfully in Babylon. It's the introduction to the book. How do we live out our life faithfully in a foreign land? And then chapters 2 to 7 are, 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 are chapters which describe to us the God to whom the kingdoms of this world belong. You read those chapters and it's unmistakable that God is in control, that God is on the throne. And then you come to chapters 8 to 12 and they, they really describe world history from the point of view of the saints or the people of God. How we live and how we make sense of this world that's so crazy. And so then we can zero in a little bit more closely on that core section, chapter 2, two to 7, and we find something fascinating about those books. They're balanced. Chapters 2 and 7 present two visions of four empires, um, one in chapter 2, one in chapter 7. And what they help us understand is that our God is a God who reveals. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows the future. And so those two balanced chapters teach that same truth twice. And then you come to chapters 3 and 6, and they present to us the story of two incredible deliverances of God. We have the deliverance of the three men in the fiery furnace and then the deliverance of Daniel from the lion's den. And it teaches us about a God who is able to rescue us. And then you come to the center of that core section, chapters 4 and 5, and you find that we have a God who rules this world. He disciplines the rulers of this world. He raises them up and he brings them down. And so we have a God who rules. Hang on to those three words this week. Maybe you can just make a note of them, keep them in your head. They're a great way to make sense of the world around us. The first is simply the God who knows the future, the God who reveals. God doesn't always tell us what's going to happen tomorrow or down the road, but we have the assurance that God knows what's going to happen. We know that Christ is coming back. He's revealed that to us in the scripture. He tells us how we ought to live. He's a God who has revealed that to us. So we say, God, you will show me what you need to show me if I need to know it for tomorrow. Know this, though, that God knows it, even if he doesn't declare it to you. The second thing, as you go about your work, remember this, that when you get into a difficult situation, God is able to deliver you. He doesn't always deliver miraculously. He doesn't always save your life. But know that one way or another, God will rescue you. As Peter tells us, God knows how to rescue his godly ones from trouble. Sometimes he does deliver us as we stand fast and stand firm. Sometimes, as many in the world know, we lose our lives. But in the end, we are rescued from the clutches of hell and we are brought to heaven. So God is a God who rescues. When you are in trouble this week, cry out to God and say, God, deliver me. And then thirdly, God is a God who rules. When you turn on the news or you uh, check your podcast or you get your news source from wherever you do or you listen to the radio, you read the paper and there is stuff blowing up all over this world. Kingdoms rising, kingdoms falling, governments trashing in other places, men killing men, women killing women, just trash going on. Rather than be discouraged, say, but God, you rule this world. And I don't know what you're doing, and I don't know why this is happening, but I know you are in control. And rather than be filled with fear and be filled with trembling, be filled with confidence and faith in a God who rules this world. So Daniel 
was a godly man sent by God to live in ungodly Babylon. And in many ways, that is the reality of every single saint here tonight. We are called out of the world, but we are sent into the world by God. Daniel will help us wrestle with what that looks like. Daniel and his three friends were under considerable pressure to conform. To be sure, their religion was tolerated, even respected, as long as it didn't intrude into public life or challenge the status quo of the state. John Lennox, he's a great Christian apologetics, has written a commentary on Daniel from a unique angle, and he says this, Today, we live in a culture with strong currents of pluralism and secularism, reinforced by a paralyzing political correctness, pushing faith in God to the margins and limiting it to the private sphere. Isn't that true in life? People don't want you to talk about God in school. People don't want you to talk at God at work. People don't want you to talk about God in the social circles that you run with where they don't know Jesus. People don't want you to talk about God in the government halls. They don't want faith, Christian faith in particular, to have anything to say about public life. And they push it into the private world. And they say, you must keep it to yourself. Finally, we read a book like Daniel and we think to ourselves, the world's winning. I don't know how many people must have looked at the exile and thought, Nebuchadnezzar, he's won. He's done it again. He's conquered all these other nations around us, and now he's conquered us, and he's taken us, uh, the best and the brightest of us, he's taken us into exile, he's destroyed our land, he's won. And Nebuchadnezzar struts around like so many of these leaders do, thinking that nobody can touch him, that he's, 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 he's invulnerable to anything, as so many leaders today do. They don't even think they're accountable to the people any longer. But we know that not only did Daniel outlive Nebuchadnezzar, but he outlived Darius and Belshazzar as well. That we know that God's kingdom is an eternal kingdom and the kingdoms of man are temporal. I end with this. It's just a quote which I found helpful and sometimes people say it way better than I ever could think of. He says, I don't know of any message that is so valuable for Christians living in our own secular and materialistic time as is the message of Daniel. Indeed, in Daniel, we have a stirring and helpful example of a man who not only lived through such times and survived them, but actually triumphed in them and excelled in public life to the glory of God. Daniel did not compromise. He did not bow to the world's idols. He was hated and plot against, but... He triumphed because he knew God entrusted him to do with his life whatever was best. We need people like that today. People who are aware of the dangers of trying to serve God in this world, but who trust God in spite of the danger and who will not compromise. They are the ones who really triumph regardless of appearances, and in the last analysis, they are the only ones who make a difference. Oh, may God help you all to make a difference in the kingdom of God as you live in Babylon this week. Father, thank you for your word. And as we get ready to go into the book of Daniel, may it be a real help to us on a practical level as well as on a theological level. For those of us who do struggle with finding that balance between living for you and living in the world around us, may you help us by your Holy Spirit to do that better, to seek the welfare of these places that you have landed us in because in their welfare we also do well but also do not sell our souls to Babylon. I pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen.